the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. And welcome to JJ, the JJ Dillon podcast. I am your co-host, JP John Paz. With me is the star of the show, two-time Hall of Famer, the leader of the Four Horsemen, the second greatest manager of all time, a former WWF and WCW executive. Of course, it is James J. Dillon. JJ, how are you doing this evening? Very good, John. Good to be with you again. Now, JJ, last week, of course, in, in our continual Tales of the Four Horsemen, we talked about Lex joining the group. And, of course, right after that, an infamous other man will join the Four Horsemen as Lex kind of turns his back on the Horsemen, leaves the group, and then we get Barry Windham. But before we kind of get into that, J.J., what do you think of Barry Windham, or or should I say, what did you think when you first met Barry Windham? Well, I... uh... Knew Barry as uh, as a teenager. Uh, I don't know what year it was, but the uh, his father, Blackjack Mulligan, and Dick Murdoch, the late Dick Murdoch, um, bought the Amarillo territory from the Funks, and Barry was there, uh, basically uh, hauling the ring from town to town, setting up the ring, and you know, just a, a young kid, but young kid that just oozed of, of athleticism and, um, you know, very much wanting to, uh, you know, join the wrestling fraternity. Uh, his father, Blackjack, you know, and I, you know, I never really got into a discussion with it with Jack, but for whatever the reason, he, he didn't want Barry because, uh, you know, the business can be tough and, uh, you know, Jack had seen it all and, and I guess he was thinking more protective of Barry and, and wanted to discourage Barry. And it was okay to have Barry haul the ring, which he was going to the town, being around the events. And uh, I maybe Jack thought that that would be, you know, enough for Barry. But being around Barry, um, you know, I knew that, that, you know, he had aspirations of putting on the tights, getting in the ring. And, and um, of course it wasn't something that uh, he could discuss with his father and I was not about to bring it up with Jack either. So uh, I don't know exactly how it came about, but we were going to, I think it was in Fort Stockton and with Barry, you know, I told him one night, I said, look, you know, bring your tights. And he said, well, I always have them in the car with me in the trunk. 
said, okay, good. And I said, uh, we'll do an extra match before the show starts, unadvertised. And, of course, his eyes lit up, and he, you know, was really excited. And we had a match, uh, Barry's first ever match. And it's like you, if you're in the profession, you, you can instantly tell an assessment, even of a very young, what we would consider a green talent, as to how much raw talent they actually really possess. And it was obvious that first match that Barry uh, handled himself as if he had somebody that had been in the profession wrestling full-time for 10 years. And it was easier to have the match with Barry and have Jack find out. And it was easier to ask Jack for forgiveness rather than permission to do it because he would never have said, said yes to the giving permission. And, um, of course, that was step one of... Uh, uh, of a great career with Barry and, you know, our friendship has extended through all these years. And, um, to me, Barry Wyndham, if not the greatest, and I realize that that's a pretty, you know, you hear the all the time, but if, if he wasn't the greatest talent that I was ever in the ring with, he was, you, you know, you count him on one hand and he was, uh, uh, he was in that group. He just had tremendous raw talent. So, uh, you know, it was the beginning of a friendship, too. Uh, once Jack, you know, got reports back about how great Barry was, then, you know, that opened the door for Barry to start wrestling some more frequently and building up his experience. And um, what's so exciting is that uh, as, as we're airing this, uh, uh, I'm in St. Louis, and a small world it'd be that uh, uh, on the card, well, actually there for a, uh, for a seminar and a clinic are Arn Anderson, the enforcer, and Barry Windham. So I'm going to be having the day with Arn and Barry and, you know, reliving a lot of the old times. And I, I also promised, uh, I, I live in, in uh, Delaware, went to college in Reading, Pennsylvania, and apparently... Months and months ago, uh, a local promoter, a, a respected local promoter in Reading, Ray Torres, had approached me about doing a date, and I, I think I indicated, yes, I would do it, didn't have anywhere to write it down, and over months and months and months, it got forgotten, and it, the date was uh, <laughs> Saturday, November 2nd, that coincided with the time that I'm in St. Louis, so... Uh, I had to apologize to, to Ray and tell him the the reschedule of the date. That uh, I mean, Reading is a special place to me. My my uh, daughter lives there. Um, I have grandchildren there. I went to college there. So Reading is a very very special place to me. And uh, he he there's some advertising going out. So I promised uh, Ray Torres that I would make mention of this and take Ray off the hook and take responsibility that. That uh, not that I'm a huge uh, uh, thing in the business where <laughs> I have multiple bookings, but in this case, uh, uh, I was committed to Ray at some point, though it was quite some time ago and never never written down on my part. Again, my fault. And then, of course, I'm I'm in St. Louis uh, for the weekend, so I promised Ray to try to reschedule a date at some point, and I will be back because, again, uh, uh, I, I I hate that I'm ever mentioned that I'm going to be somewhere and this was my fault. Uh, 
And I told uh, Ray that I would mention it so that the fans in Reading would know that that uh, whatever early advertising went out on Ray's part was in good faith. Uh, he was under the impression that I would definitely be there, and that was my intent. But the commitment was made so long ago, and I, I don't have a bookkeeper. I don't have a, 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 a secretary, and I just neglected to write it down, completely forgot about it, and, of course, committed to be in St. Louis uh, with Herd Simmons for uh, for Charlie Hartman Armstrong doing a clinic with Barry and Arn. So, uh, again, to the fans in Reading, uh, Ray Torres was a straight shooter with you. I promised uh, Ray for an upcoming event. I know we're close to the end of the year. Probably wouldn't be till sometime after the first of the year. But uh, when he puts an event together in Reading, I promised the fans in Reading that I would uh, would come back and and um, and really look forward to coming to Reading and, and seeing a lot of old friends and uh, and you know wrestling was a, 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 a rest, Reading was a great wrestling town too. Absolutely, and I love that you'll be with Arn and Barry, kind of reliving the Four Horsemen days and reliving the past. And of course, today, obviously, the focus is really Barry. You know, joining the Four Horsemen, really joining the stable. And back in January, all the way 1988. It was kind of the set is set in motion. So he's teaming with Luger after Luger basically turns on the horseman, or you could say the horseman turned on him. I kind of say Luger turned on them, but you know, whatever. Uh, so he's teaming with Barry against the horseman. Those two even go on to beat Arn and Tully for the NWA tag team champions championship, excuse me, at the original clash of the champions. So when April, 1988 rolls around Luger and Windham are teaming again against horsemen, uh, Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard in a rematch, and this time around, Barry turns on the Four Horsemen. So, what was your kind of memories going back all the way to '88? And at first, Barry and Luger are teaming against the Horsemen. Was it always kind of the plan, always set in motion that you know, you're building for a few months? Barry's with Luger, and then all of a sudden, when the time is right, April rolls around, Barry's going to turn on him. Uh, it was something that was kind of. Uh in the plans for for quite some time it was also something that even within the the locker room and everything and the guys that were there at the time a very well kept secret and that that's a major accomplishment in and of itself and um barry worked the match prior to and even up to the moment where the switch happened in the match with luger barry didn't anyway telegraph it Nobody from uh, my side with uh, with Arn telegraphed it. And it was one of the times in my whole career where I can say that we pulled off that switch with Barry coming over and, and, and joining Arn and I, and that it genuinely shocked the people. They did not call it. They did not see it coming. And it, it was one of those things that just because of the way it was done and because the ability of both uh, – you know, Arn and Barry, um, we pulled it off and just had uh, incredible impact. So cool at this point because Wyndham, you're right, totally shocking. You didn't see him. You totally saw him as yep. the baby face. So when he turns and he joins the group and he joins Arn, Rick, and Tully and yourself, it just kind of shook the world for a moment. It really made Luger even a bigger face and obviously turned him into a huge, huge heel. Initially, when you see Barry turning heel, are you thinking like, it was going to go that well? Are you thinking it's going to shock the people? Like, what were your thoughts as like you leading up to it? Full confidence? 
I had oh, absolutely full confidence. Uh, full confidence in Barry. And, I mean, he he was, if I was going to clone a candidate to be NWA World Heavyweight Champion, um, Barry Windham would have all the qualities that I would, all the boxes that I would check off. He had the youth. He had the, the, the size. He had the, the, the looks, the athletic ability. He had everything. And it's unusual in our profession. You have some guys that, well, you know, he's, he's a good-looking guy, and, geez, I wish he was a couple inches taller, or he, he, he's, he's okay in the ring, but he's, he's not super polished. Barry had it all. And what was so great about that was that Barry's ability in the ring was so good and the way I don't remember the exact specifics of how we did it, but I, but what I remember at the time was that it shocked the wrestling world because nobody saw it coming. They did not predict it. And that's why it had even greater impact uh, when Barry jumped over. And I just, I was thrilled to be able to, you know, have him in our, our side of the dressing room and, and to be around him every night and, like I say, of all the, and I've been around the best of the best in our profession. And, uh, you know, I always, I'm so high on Ric Flair for everything that he was for all those years. And, uh, actually, you know, I, I've been so lucky cause I, 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 I look at Tully Blanchard and I look at Arn Anderson, the whole horseman thing, um, was so successful because each of the individuals, even with Ole were already at the top of their game. And already, it wasn't a situation sometimes where, you know, you'll have a, a, a grouping of two or three guys and, and one of the guys maybe doesn't have this, the same skill level that the, that the other guys do. And, you know, the other group, the rest of the guys in the group carry them on. And in this case, everybody was uh, uh, at a main event level in their own right and I'll go so far as to say Barry was as good as any wrestler. And I've been around the business for over half a century. And I can't think of anybody that was a better talent, whether he was uh, dressing with the bad guys or whether he was a, because he had the size and the good looks to, to have the girls chasing him and be a favorite with the, with the fans on the other dressing room. Barry could do it all. And just, I'm so blessed that I was there at the right place, the right time to have worked uh, all these years with Barry and which makes it even more exciting for, to be in St. Louis uh, t uh, tonight for Herb Simmons show and to have Arn there and Barry there. We're, we're doing a, uh, a clinic seminar during the day and we're meeting and greeting some fans in the afternoon. And then uh, bell time is like seven o'clock and just, uh, it's a thrill for me to, to be around Arn and Barry. You know what's so great about Barry and how great he was? It was that kind of the commitment to turning heel. He didn't really look the same. I mean, he does, but in in a certain sense, he goes to the black glove. He goes to the all black, the claw hold, which kind of was a signature move of Black Jack Mulligan, his father. Mm -hmm. You know, he changed it up a bit. Was that his doing? Was that Dusty? Was that you kind of giving him advice? Like, hey, if you're going to turn heel, you know, you got to go full bore. Well, I think it was, uh, I mean, Barry is a very, very smart business-wise, and uh, as I've said before, and bears repeating, that Dusty Rhodes was a, 
was a genius and doesn't really get credit in the industry for, first of all, what a great in-ring talent he was. They look at him and say, Dusty, I never thought he was that great. You know, he was. And his ring psychology and his uh, ability to uh, to book a territory. Uh, he had it all. And boy, any time that you could have like a Tully Blanchard, Arn Anderson, Barry Windham, and uh, your talent roster, Wow, that's a lot of uh, a lot of studs to to be able to fill seats in, in arenas. So as far as chemistry, we always talk about the group as a whole and the chemistry of the group. And we talked about Ole and how his chemistry was with the group. We talked about Luger and kind of adding him to the fold. What about Barry? When you add Barry to that group, along with Rick and Arn and Tully and yourself, does he mesh well immediately with you guys? As far as you know, he's, he was a babyface. Pro- Primarily now he's going to be healed. What's the chemistry like with you guys? Oh, Barry fit in uh, immediately. Yeah, absolutely, because he's. Uh, I mean, I've I've uh, interacted with basically the who's who in the profession for half a century, and again talking about guys that that had the size, had had all, had everything, had the athletic ability, the in-ring psychology. Uh, you know, if, if I had to narrow it down to five, Barry would be in that five. He was that good. He is so almost underrated, which is crazy to say because how good he is. But it, it's funny, people, you know, today we talk about Flair being the best. But you got to throw Barry in there. And especially if you go back to 87 in Florida when they were having, you know, these five-star matches and, and Barry Windham was the baby face against Flair. Was that kind of the first time maybe Flair thought? I know, obviously, he's got a big history of Black Jim Mulligan. Was that the first time Flair really kind of uh, Barry got on his radar as well? I think we all had Barry on the radar. And the only thing was that, and and it wasn't something that that you entered into a discussion with Blackjack about, you know, mm-hmm. wanting to... Uh, to help his son put the tights on because the, that everybody just looked at Barry and said, Oh boy, if, and when, if, and if, and when it happens and we all hope that we could either convince Jack or somehow find a scenario where Barry would, uh, put the tights on and go in the ring because he just, he had all the qualities. He was as good a gifted talent. And like I say, in over half a century of all those that I was ever around, uh, Barry was uh, right there at the t- at the top of the list. He just he could do everything. He could do everything. So this particular lineup and grouping of the four horsemen often called the best and kind of the greatest grouping and the greatest faction and the four greatest technical wrestlers together as far as a team and arguably the best horsemen. What is kind of your thoughts on that? Because so many people say that this group in particular with Barry is the best i i i could make it i would definitely be able to make a case for that as a uh, is an accurate statement and like i said before i think part of the reason that we were so successful was that each of the individuals was at the top of his game and by that i mean they not only had the ability not only were at at the level where where they were a proven commodity that they could draw they could do interviews. They could do it all. And what made the situation unique was, and because and sometimes you have, you know, you have high-profile people like that 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 um, 
there, there's a behind the scenes tension because whether it's jealousy or worried that somebody's going to get ahead of them or whatever. And with that grouping, that, that it just didn't exist. There was no jealousy whatsoever. And uh, I think that's why it was so successful and why it's had the longevity that it's had. What are your thoughts of behind the scenes with him? Because obviously we talked about Ole, not a partier, more of a family guy. He doesn't want to go out to town and drink with the guys and, you know, things like that. And you always hear about Barry Windham, one of the most prolific beer drinkers of all time, that he could out drink all these guys. So did he just fit in perfectly with the group as far as he'll go out and he'll party and he'll do that? And then obviously when the time is right, he'll go out and wrestle and have a five-star mm-hmm. match, things like that. So did he mesh well behind the scenes as well? Yes, and I can attest to whether it was uh, in the airport or behind an arena when we pulled up or, you know, in the back. Barry had the height. He had the youth. He had the – God, he had the good looks. And, and <laughs> you, you, I don't know, the word chick magnet maybe gets overused in our business, but the women flocked to him because he just – and he and it, and he wasn't a guy who – like was flirtatious and 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 tried to to bring women to them. If anything went the other way, where uh, he was so swamped that uh, if anything he had, there were times where he had to hide to to have any uh, peace and quiet. The women loved him. Thing is with Barry now, which is crazy, because then he, you said he was a chick magnet, good looking guy. Now, which is kind of scary he almost looks identical to blackjack am i crazy on saying that i think they look exactly like you know current day barry windham yes i mean he he had the height and as he matured physically and filled out uh there was no denying that he was uh that he was uh jack mulligan's son so crazy how like eerily similar they are. And back then, you wouldn't think that he would grow up to look so much like his dad, just because the look was completely different. And now he grew up, and he oh man, it's just crazy. He looks exactly like Blackjack. Yep, almost like e- eerily similar. It's just crazy. Well, but Jack, it, Blackjack, Blackjack was, you know, you talk about icons and greats in our business. Blackjack Mulligan is right up there. So. Mm-hmm. Understanding that, you can understand why Barry had that DNA going through his his uh, his bloodstream. Uh, it's not a guarantee that uh, that he would be successful, but boy, he had, he had Jack's DNA. He had the size, he had the good looks, and he had the athletic ability. And like I said, if I if I was you know if the if the board of the National Wrestling Alliance back when the the wrestling champion was traveling to all the territories and and you wanted a candidate for who would be able to carry the belt and be able to have a match with anybody and be able to walk into a room and have everybody turn their head and say, Hey, I'm, I, I know who that guy is, or I'm not sure who he is, but he's somebody. And that, that's, that was, that was Barry Windham. He, he fit that mold perfectly. And yet he was not, uh, uh he was not, somebody who self-promoted himself or drew attention to himself. It it all just gravitated to him because of who he was. He just was a big guy with good looks. And when he was in the ring and the bell rang, there was, there was nobody better than him. 
interesting. Some guys that have legendary fathers in the business flounder. Some other guys kind of excel. What do you think it was about Barry? Just it's just so easy for him to kind of follow in his father's footsteps. I think it was, and and what you're saying is true because a lot of a lot of second generation wrestlers um, uh, kind of get smothered being in the shadow of of who, of their father, who depending on who he was and how successful he was in the business and uh there's a lot of second generation wrestlers that that uh uh struggle to get out from under the this the the reputation and the shadow of their father and as successful and as big a star as blackjack mulligan was um barry didn't never had that problem even if he had not been blackjack's son he would have still been a huge huge star in our business so at this point in time in 88, as we're rolling along with the horseman, well, of course, with Barry, Barry becomes the United States champion, Arnatelli tag champ, Rick is the world champion. So you guys basically have all the belts and control all the belts in the NWA. Is there any kind of heat on the four horsemen that they're so dominant and they've kind of taken over? Or is that just like, okay, these guys are drawing the most money. The guys doing that, they deserve to have the belts. <sighs> You know, I don't know that I could give you an accurate answer. I, well, one part of it tells me that 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 none none of the individuals in the group um, had attitude, and by attitude I mean nobody walked into the dressing room and expected to be treated differently than anybody else. In other words, move your stuff. That's my spot. Or, it, it, I mean, it just. And I think that's another piece of the puzzle as to why the horsemen enjoyed uh, such great success, because we were all individually, and I I consider myself lucky to have been the right place at the right time to be a part of it. But each one of the guys, uh, if it had been a different time and a different era, would have been just as successful because of their own individual talent. And then you draw them all together. And it was a, it was a, and I, I think I've said on a prior episode, it was like Arn Anderson. Uh, we, if we had a day off, uh, or during the holidays when somebody would have a party, we would all be together. You and you would think, well, geez, you're on the road all all the time and around these guys. You'd think that you would would uh, like to have a day off, and they'd be the last person you want to see. But we all generally enjoyed each other's company. Um, and, and, and you can't, you can't manufacture that. You can't tell a guy, now look, you, you got to move in there and make sure you keep your mouth shut and, then uh, be friendly. And, uh, there's a pecking order and there was no pecking order. You know, we just, and I, and I've said on a prior episode, like sometimes we'd be out there in a group and we maybe not have, uh, uh, you know, two or four minutes to do an interview. We might have less time. And in most cases, it wasn't like, well, somebody would say, hey, well, I'll, I'll, I'll do this or I'll carry it. It's almost like before the light would come on, somebody would say, hey, I think I got an idea. Go. And sometimes that idea would carry through the whole length of the interview. And I know that I worked hard at in a situation like that, even if I never said a word that by my facial expressions, by my, uh, if Arn was talking and he was in something and making a point, I could, I would look at him and, and I, I would nod. In other words, I was listening to what he said. 
and being a part of it even though I wasn't verbalizing it. And that, that, the people sitting at home watching on TV pick up on that. And I think that was a big part of, of, of why we so, were so successful and continue to be. And I love that you guys were so dominant that at this point you take all the titles and you are all the champs and you're kind of running the show. As far as the book. And, and, and just to I'm, apologize for cutting you off, but you asked about how everybody else looked at it. It was a time, and, and I've been in situations where the guys on top um, the other guys, there can be some jealousy where they say, well, you know, because he's the booker, because he's this, you know, he's on top and, and I'm not getting my chance. I, I don't remember hearing any of that. And I think it was in large part because business was so good and we were drawing money and yes, we were making money, but everybody on the cards was, and they, guys that were, you know, if there were two towns running, uh, and we were on one of the towns, guys wanted to be on our card because they knew that they were going to be financially better off than if they were in another town. And the booking, like you said, no jealousy, you guys are on top of the booking. As far as Dusty is concerned, what is he thinking? Like that he's going to kind of, you guys are kind of like the cash cows. He's going to use you guys and maybe massage himself been there and feud with Barry or do you think that's just like the next logical thing all right he's feud with Flair now Barry turns he's got a feud with Barry the only thing that I remember and was while Dusty was booking the horsemen were over so big that basically every night we could get beat we didn't have to we didn't have to beat somebody else we could get beat and then just had, knew what we needed to do right after the match to get our heat back. And all of a sudden that, that baby face fires up again and we bail out and go and we've lost the match. And the people are mad at us, wanting us to get back in the ring and get our butts kicked. And they forget what the decision of the match was. And there's an art to that and a skill level to that. And, you know, there were people that said, well, you know, and there, and there was some concerns. Uh, Flair sometimes would concern that that uh, Dusty's getting his hand raised every night and beating us, and uh, maybe a little bit of angst that that if that continues, uh, that all of a sudden we're going to lose our steam, and and. Everybody in this business knows that once you get to that level, if you lose that steam, sometimes it's difficult and in some cases almost impossible to get it back. And, and once you get to that level, you don't ever want to be in that position where you fall prey to that. And so the guys sometimes, I, and I was caught between a rock and a hard place because Dusty was the booker. I had a great personal relationship with Dusty and a great professional relationship with him. And my office was right next to Dusty's and I shared an office with Gene Anderson. And every now and then, Flair would, because, you know, he, Flair was Flair and, and the, probably the biggest star that ever came out of the Mid-Atlantic area. And he would express concern that God, Dusty's beating us every night, and all of a sudden, 
you know, we're, we're, we're going to all of a sudden have the whole thing collapse and then not be able to get it back. And I had the ability of listening to the guys in the dressing room. And then they, they would say to me, cause I'm in the office every day with dusty and they would say to me, well, don't you ever talk to him? <laughs> hmm. I had a, I had a great relationship with Dusty, but it wasn't the kind of thing where I could have walked into his office, closed the door and basically had any conversation with Dusty because we, you know, we were that close too. but I never in my wildest dreams would have thought of going in and closing the door and say, Dusty, God, you're beating us every night. You sure that's such a good idea. <laughs> it just, right. it just, I wouldn't have been comfortable doing that. And so I instead, I had a, a good, great relationship with Jimmy Crockett and business was so good. And so, and this would happen maybe once every six months, every nine months. It wasn't like it was a, a regular thing once a month having to do this. I, I would, because Dusty all would finish and he would leave and I'd be in the office with Gene and, and Jimmy would be there and... I'd say to Jimmy, you know, can I have a couple minutes with you? Yes, come in, close the door. What's going on? And I would tell him, I'd say, I'm in the dressing room with Flair, and uh, Flair is saying, you know, saying that Dusty's a glory hound and he's beating us every night, and we're going to die off and not be able to get our heat back, and and asking me, don't you say something to Dusty? And so I could share. The, the mood and how intense that mood was with Jimmy Crockett and Jimmy would listen to me and he'd say, okay, thank you. That's all he'd say. And I wouldn't ask him, what are you going to do about it? Or I, it just was, and this was not something that I went in every couple of weeks or every month. This would be something where I would realize that, that flair was now just, it was like, it was getting to a boiling point, and before it got to that boiling point, I wanted to make Jimmy aware of it. And next day in the dressing, or, or like we maybe have a day off or something, and Rick would come to the dressing room, and he'd be like a whole different person. And he'd say, "Ah," oh, he said, "I used to be close to Jimmy Crockett," and he'd say, "I'd have dinner with him and Myra all the time," and. He called me and he said, hey, we haven't done it for a while. Why don't you come on over to the house and have dinner? And I went over and, you know, I, I talked a few things about business. And by the time I was, was done, Jimmy had me feeling so good about everything we'd accomplished and how well things were going and how he was watching what was going on and wouldn't let things get out of hand. And, and, and so I'm sitting there listening and... And I didn't tell him that I had a private conversation with Jimmy. And Jimmy knew what to say to Flair to put Flair at ease, that everything was okay, that Jimmy was on top of it. It wasn't like Dusty was uh, running with the ship and it was out of Jimmy's control. And Jimmy would know when was the right time to go and have a private conversation with Dusty about you know, we got to be careful. We don't, we don't want to take the, the steam off of these guys. Uh, and whether it was doing that little angle on TV to put some steam back on us or what, but it, it was like, 
I had a great relationship with Dusty. I loved that man. I, I generally loved him like a brother. And had such success with him financially. And, uh, you know, he and Michelle, wonderful people. And I watched his two sons grow up. And uh, nobody ever saw me socialize with Dusty. It was like on rare occasions that uh, around the holidays I would invite, be invited over to the house and there would be nobody, no outsiders there and nobody would even know that I was there. And that was the relationship that I had with Dusty. And I have to look at all the success I had was because of how Dusty viewed me and how, how what my role was in that big puzzle. And... I didn't. I didn't need. I didn't need to have all the other guys know that. Oh, you know, I'm tight with Dusty and everything is cool. No, I. I. I never said anything to anybody about anything. Just business was good. I had no complaints, and I just knew when the conversation. Because I'm with the heels in the dressing room with Flair, and 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 sometimes Flair would be the one to kind of fuel it. Where guys, that ah, Dusty's gonna kill us off, you know. He's beating us every night, leaving. You know, we're bleeding, and then he's beating us too, and and we're left laying in the ring, and he's gonna kill our heat. And we'll never get it back. Um, I, you know, I had a sense of, I, I they, somebody like Flair would push the panic button, and I had confidence that. Uh, Everything was better than what Rick felt it was, and I and at the same time I understood, I understood Rick's concern too. And I would convey it, you know, and it may like I say it might be once in nine months, but I would finally pull Jimmy off and I'd say, Jimmy you got a little problem, and you know, usually I can listen to him, and the guy said, Well, you're there with him, don't you tell, don't you talk to him every day, <laughs> and, and and I wouldn't every time that happened go to go to Jimmy. I would sense when it was reaching a boiling over point and before somebody did something or said something stupid, I would go to Jimmy and then it would be something as simple as Jimmy going into flair and say, you haven't been over to the house with Myra and I had to have dinner for a while. You know, why don't you come over and Rick would go over and Jimmy knew the right things to say to Rick to kind of put Rick's mind at ease the business was great and all was well and and Rick would have a chance to maybe make a comment about getting beat every night and Jimmy could just say, hey, I, I'm watching it. I'm not going to let it get out of hand. And that would be enough to put Rick's mind at ease. And Rick never knew that I had that conversation with Jimmy and that, that, that I then let Jimmy handle it. Now, did he, Crockett ever kind of say to Dusty or maybe to you about booking and stuff like, I want this done. I want that done. Like at this time period, would he say really to come out and just say, Oh, I want this guy pushed. I want that guy pushed. Or was it kind of like you were saying, it's very kind of under the radar, very smooth, very under the radar, very smooth. And, and Dusty, <coughs> Dusty was drew a lot of money. He was a huge card in our business, but he also had a sense of the big picture and, you know, Jimmy Valiant was there at the time, Sam Houston, uh, uh, the Road Warriors. Everybody was making money. And they knew that Dusty was uh, was the booker. 
And it wasn't like Dusty uh, was financially being rewarded for something that he wasn't contributing to. Because Dusty, Dusty drew. <laughs> he drew it. He was very smart in booking. And, and you know, he would, he would book the TV sometimes and some shows. And he, and I had an office right next to him with Gene Anderson and he would come in with the TV. He'd throw the TV down and, and throw his Gucci bag over his shoulder and out the door he would go. And he had a Mercedes convertible and the Dusty was on top of the world. And I was happy for him because he, he deserved everything that he got. And I would take the, the, the TV and sometimes he'd have a guy on there twice that he didn't realize he was already. And so I, I was the detail. Per, Dusty was a big, I guess the best way to describe it. Dusty was a big picture guy. I was a detail person. So I complimented Dusty by being a detail person. Could I do what Dusty did? I will be the first to tell you. Absolutely not. He was a genius at what he did. He was, uh, uh, a top draw because he could talk and he could perform in the ring. And Dusty and I were, were personal friends too, really were. And so I could look at the TV and clean it up. And when we would go to TVs, especially like a clash of the champions or, um, even to a degree, like when we would do TBS on a Saturday morning and it would be taped to air, at 6.05 and we would already be on a plane that afternoon somewhere to appear at a live event that night, you know, maybe up in Ohio or somewhere. And I did all the timing and nobody ever looked over my shoulder. I knew I could, I, I learned early on, like if I would go to, to, uh, I even joked about it. I was, I did a show this, uh, this past weekend with the talk and it was good to see him. You know, he's a, a great guy and a, and a great performer and he still travels the world goes over to england in fact that i told him oh england's one of those places i've never been and he said i'm gonna hook you up and so i'm looking forward to a good possibility that uh i'll pick up a tour uh to england sometime in the months to come and, and excited to go with him because I, I i like being around him uh i lost my train of thought well, you just basically were talking about how you were responsible for being the detail guy, handling yep. the timing of the shows and traveling and basically kind of talking about the, the travel aspect as far as taping the show Saturday morning. Yeah. And I would, Saturday night I, when the show aired, you're gone. And I'd have to line up the guys for enhancement talent. And I had um, oh, terrible games. There was uh, somebody there in uh, Atlanta and the Carolinas would give me names. And then, um, guy whose name I can't think of that lived over in Alabama, uh, would, would give me the, would give me names. And I, instead of me calling 10 different guys for TV, you know, I would, I would call the one guy and I would say, you know, I need six for TV. And he would know that I, I, what my standard was that, uh, I, I don't can't ever remember a situation where he would show up that somebody either didn't look like a wrestler, didn't dress like a wrestler, or w w their performance level would not be up to my standard. And so I had confidence in them, 
and they they made sure that they had the best people and it wasn't the same people all the time because you need to change faces and um you know i i i took care of them too because that was took a big load off me to have what i call enhancement talent that were up to the standard of what our promotion was all about and i remember i had george south came to me one time and he said uh and he was a guy that got talent in the Carolinas. And he came up to me and he said, I want, I want to thank you. I said, what do you want to thank me for? And he said, I made a payment today that I now own my house. I was able to pay in advance, pay in advance. And today I own my house and I, I owe you for all of that. And I said, whoa, George, stop right there. I said, to start with, Whatever rewards that you got and you were smart enough to save your money and to be able to pay cash for your house. And I, I, God, I have so much respect for you for being a smart businessman and not wasting your money and, you know, cars and jewelry that you're able to pay, pay for your house, but never lose face of the, of the fact that you, whatever you received was not because of some blind generosity on my part you you're hearing it from me you earned every bit of it and because i had confidence in you that when i needed four people five people six people and i called you you picked it up from there knew that i couldn't have the same faces every week and that i had a certain standard so i said i had confidence in you you were we were part of a team and as a result you were always, uh, you know, on the big shows, and that's how it should have been. You should have been rewarded for the service that that you helped me provide, um, and that's how it was. It was just so, so well done, and uh, and Dusty had confidence in me because he knew what I, I, I would. I remember a lot of times at TV because I would have to time the whole show out. And I would put the order matches like for TV. And I knew from early on, like if I could go to, like I, I joked at the talk, if I went up to talk and say, okay, for your match, how much of a cue do you need to go home? And he said, oh, a minute 30. So the headset, the referee would have an ear plug in and someone would say, give him, give, him the, give him the cue. Or Gene Anderson used to go out. And when they saw Gene Anderson walk out in the back by the curtain, they knew that that was their cue to go home. Well, I soon learned that the guy that told me a minute and a half, in reality, it was three, three and a half minutes. And if you're near the end of a show, <laughs> that could be a huge problem. So I banked in my, that, uh, you know, and I would give him the curse. So how much time, how much cue do you need to go home? Oh, a minute and a half. Well, I knew that that minute and a half was three minutes. And that's how I would time it in as to when to send somebody out. To tell him to go home, and it uh, it was a, a just a learning process, and um, I ju I had great success because of the people that uh, that surrounded me that were so good at, at, at what they did. Now, as far as Barry and Arn and Tully and Rick and the Four Horsemen, that it to me is probably my favorite and probably the best pairing of the Horsemen and the best group. But as far as kind of going along with it, 
So Barry's U.S. title run is pretty dominant. Nine months or so as champion. He's beaten the Brad Armstrongs. He's even beating Dusty, Sting, Bam Bam Bigelow's of the world. Eventually, he'll go on to lose the title to Luger. But before that, Arn and Tully make their way out, and they head over to the WWF at this point. So there's a lot of kind of uh, influx going on. And mm-hmm. Arn and Tully, in, in their own kind of way, kind of uh, disbanded what could have been an even more dominant run for the Horsemen. Barry, Ever, or even Rick, were they kind of, or even yourself, upset that Arn and Tully kind of just left the Horsemen like that at possibly the top of their game? No, absolutely no. Uh, I I regarded every one of them as a close personal friend and had a great professional relationship. And and you have to think back to that era, the 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 place that everybody, the final destination that everybody had hoped to 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 rise to was to go to New York and work for Vince McMahon. That they thought that that was that was kind of like. You know, if you're a baseball player, you want to go to if you want to go to the major leagues and you want to play for the Yankees, and so, um, and that 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 was fine. And so, when they had a chance to go to New York, uh, all I could say was, "I'm happy for you." Wish you because we're, you know, you make adjustments, and I've been around the business long enough to know that. My whole future was not, I don't, and I, this is not, I don't, I don't want to say this, that like Barry and Arn, okay. You can't replace a Barry Wyndham and an Arn Anderson. Uh, you might take six months, nine months, maybe a year, and maybe never get to where that was. But at the same time, if, if they have a chance to go to New York and get the big payday and be at the garden and be at all the major shows because Vince had major population centers for his roster. I mean, Boston was a big venue. Uh, Hartford was a big venue. Philadelphia was a big venue. Pittsburgh was a big venue. Washington, D.C. You know, it was like, wow. That, you can understand why everybody hoped that they would get a chance to go to New York and get a push. Uh, but... It, Life has to go on, and I realize that uh, you know there may be a, a little bit of a period till you get somebody else, and maybe you never get anybody to get back to the level of of losing them. But I could never, in good conscience, have ever. I I, I couldn't look myself in the mirror if I said to one of them, well, "God, I can't believe you guys are leaving me. What am I going to do?" <laughs> it never even crossed my thought pattern. All I could hmm. say was, give me a big hug. I'm going to miss you like you never, you're my friend. And I still have that kind of relationship with Arn Anderson. And he, he tell, when I see him, he tells me, he says, I love you. <laughs> and hmm. I, uh, I get a tear in my eye and I tell him I love him too. And I give him a hug. And it's like, that's how we feel about each other, that we've had such success in the business, but it's more than a, just a business relationship. Because when you're on the road, good times and bad times and long trips and bad weather and all the things that could, could go wrong, um, when you got a friend like 
Arn Anderson or like Tully Blanchard or like Barry Windham. Uh, they come along once in a lifetime. And long after I'm out of, out of this profession, uh, well, I hope that day never comes, they, they will be, they're friends for life. Friends for life. And it's interesting when they leave and it's just Flyer, Barry, and yourself, you guys basically continue to call yourself the horsemen, but without kind of the key cogs in, in Arn and Tully. And I really feel like without Arn, there is no horseman. Yeah. But and even when I, even when I left, um, I, which I, I'm trying to, which think. is coming it, up soon. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, oh, Hiro Matsuda replaces and, you. Yep. Yeah. And they, you know, and they, they tried to, to keep that image of the group going and enough of the key players from the time of great success weren't there that, and I, and I never felt that they, that it wasn't right for them to try to, to keep that name going. And, and, uh, and I understood that business is business. What did you think about when they tried to put before that Kendall Wyndham, Barry's brother in the group? Do you think that that didn't really fit, didn't really work, wasn't going to be a good version of Horseman? Uh, you know, you try things and Kendall, that, that whole family from Jack to Barry to Kendall, all were, you know, Kendall wasn't as filled out as Barry was, but, um, sometimes you're, you're surprised. You take a guy like that and you think, well, you know, he, he doesn't quite have the size of Barry and he doesn't, maybe that can't do the interview like Barry, but you give him a chance because you take you have to you have to give people a chance give them an opportunity to succeed does everybody exceed to your to your level of anticipation or expectation no but sometimes you maybe look at somebody and think well i'm going to give them the push but i don't have total confidence or great expectation, but I, I'm going to, I want to give them a chance and they turn around and surprise you and are everything that you thought they might be or hope they would be. And so much more. And it's those moments where you would never tell them that, that when it started, you got behind them and, get, and gave them that push and didn't really expect them to be as successful as they did you. You can't tell somebody that you, you just go through it and, uh, cause this business is no, you know, there's no guarantees. Uh, I was always a pretty good, uh, judge of talent, look, looking at somebody and be able to figure what their potential was and how far they could go. Um, and I think that was part of it. Why one of the things that helped me be successful was because, I, I, I could judge talent and fairly well accurately get a sense of what their potential was. So as you're about to leave and head off to WWF and take the front office job there, they do, like you mentioned, replace you with Hiro Matsuda. Flyer on TV basically kicks you out and you're gone. You think Matsuda was ever... Not to say, you know, you, you have to be cocky and say he was never going to replace you, but do you think that that fit was ever going to work? James J. Dillon being replaced by Hiro Matsuda and the horse? Uh, wow. 
You know, there are some guys who would move on in a situation like that and their ego would dictate that they want to see the people who come behind in their shadow and their footsteps not succeed. And I was never that way. I, I you know, some people say, well, if they come and they're going to realize that, uh, how much I really contributed, how much I meant, and they tried to do it and, and they couldn't replace me. I, uh, everybody has to have in this business some kind of an ego. That's part of what drives you. That's a barometer of who you are and where you are. But I never consciously wanted to see somebody else fail or when I move on, have them not succeed. Because somebody can say, well, you know, if I moved on and then they don't, uh, you know, things drop off, then oh, they'll realize how, how important I was. And so that that fills into my, you know, my reputation in the business. And maybe some people could think that way. And I, I just had confidence in my own ability that I didn't need to move on from somewhere, have somebody else come in behind me and then not do as well as, as I had done to, to kind of say, Oh, well, wow. We didn't realize how, how, over JJ was or how important he was. And you know, I, the business, I, I, I wanted to see everybody that was in the business, make a good living and make money because I started as a fan. I'm a fan to this day. And I look at my career and I had so much help along the way. And because when I went to, in 1971, I was, uh, I was, I had a job. I worked for Jones Motor Trucking Company in a management position. I'd gone through a training program, and then they would send me out to different uh, uh, to, to different terminals. And originally, it, which was out of uh, Spring City, Pennsylvania, and originally I thought, oh, because I had talked to the Sheik Eddie Farhat, and he had told me to, if I came to Detroit. And I hadn't wrestled up to that point. And he, I remember him in the dressing room said, well, you come out, man. And you work for me. And I said, you mean come referee for you? He said, no, you told me you want to wrestle. You bring your tights, we'll put you in the ring, see what you could do. Wow. And so when I went, I got out there and I thought, well, they're going to move me. They moved me out there because I, I, di I didn't want to quit and then not have uh, uh, an income for a couple weeks. And... When I got out there, Sheik was honest with me, and I respect him for that. And he said, he said, you know, my business is a little down now. And he said, I have some guys here, but this is their full-time job. And he said, you have a job, and the job allows you to, to do some bookings and work too. He said, I'm going to ask you if you won't hold on to your job, which will take some pressure off of me. Because these other guys, if I take dates away from them to give it to you full time, that's going to put a lot of pressure on them with the, with their families, and and that's not good for anybody. And I appreciated his honesty. So when I went out there, I kept my job. He took care of me. Uh, I I wrestled around uh, uh, Detroit because my parents had moved to Detroit. My father was. Uh, 
uh, worked for General Motors, and they'd moved from Trenton, New Jersey to Detroit and stayed there uh, for 10 years till he retired. So I had a place to be able to, to stay there. And I went to Detroit thinking, oh, well, I'll quit and start wrestling full-time. And when I got there, Sheik said, man, my business is a little soft. He said, you know, I'd appreciate it because you have a job. I'll give you what I can. And then my business gets turned around. If you want to quit your job and be full-time, then I'll make it happen. So I said, okay, I appreciate it. He's honest with me. And so I was, I, and also I had known Bruno Sammartino from all those years uh, I, I, he became champion in 62 and that was my second year of college. And that's when I started as a referee. So my refereeing career for eight years before I ever put on tights and had a, my first wrestling match was during that period with, with Bruno. And I was the third man in the ring for all the big shows against Bruno and George Steele and Kowalski and, and, uh, uh, Baron Cicluna, all, all of his great, that phenomenal run he had, much of it, I was the third man, third man in the ring. And I, and I, I learned more being the third man in the ring for these sold out events with Bruno Sammartino to hear how they communicated, to see what they did, when they did it, why they did it, what the response was. And I never really had any formal training from anyone. I learned more from just being that, that, that third man in the ring. Um, so when I went to Detroit thinking that I would quit and be a full-time wrestler and they said, well, we, you know, business is such that, you know, you, can you keep your job? So I, Bruno, uh, had been in Italy and came back and I went down to see him. Uh, I was living in, uh, Niles, Ohio, which is about 90 miles, 80, 90 miles out of Pittsburgh. And so I went down to the Civic Arena, which is no longer there, but that was their big building where they had a once-a-month show. And I called Ace Freeman in the office, and I said, oh, I'm no Bruno. And, and of course, I guess how many guys called and said they knew Bruno or something, and Ace was hard of hearing. He said, hey, what? Huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I said, well, okay. Uh, Bruno uh, was going to be in the main event at the Civic, uh, Civic Arena, and so I was going to go down uh, wanting to see, you know, talk to Bruno in person. So I go down there and I, I, I was at the gate and I said, you know, I see Ace Freeman and I said, Ace came out and I said, ah, I came down and I know Bruno is back and I, I, I couldn't get in touch with him and I'd like to talk to Bruno. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. We'll stay here. So he goes inside. About two minutes goes by. All of a sudden the door opens and Ace's eyes are like, like uh, saucers, you know, they're wide open, and he's motioning me, come in, come in, come in, and I come over, and when I walked in, Bruno got up, came over, picked me up, gave me the biggest hug, and Ace is standing there like, oh, God, you do know him, and you are friends with him. I said, I tried to tell you. I, well, I didn't say I tried to tell you. I just, I, I could just know what he's thinking, and then uh, Bruno turned to Ace, and he said, I knew Jimmy from all those years refereeing and he started his wrestling career and he looked at Ace and he said, I want him. We And they would run like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, three days a week. And he said, I want him to work every weekend, every night, starting this week, coming up. If you have to add a match on the card and Ace is there with his jaw dropped because Bruno was the owner. He was the boss. <laughs> and here, Bruno's treating me like I'm a long lost brother. 
So I stayed there for a year, met Jim Grabmeyer, who would go to Crockett in the summer months, and then he'd come home in the winter because he was from Springfield, Ohio, and he'd work around Pittsburgh, and he'd work for the Sheik, too. So he came home, and he left, and so I kept my job, and I was working dates for the Sheik and dates for, you know, for Pittsburgh, which, again, only worked on weekends and had my job. And I, But I was, I was getting more in-ring experience, which was good. So uh, Grabmeyer goes to Charlotte, and he wasn't gone two days, and my phone rings, and he says, it's, it was Grabmeyer. And he said, I'm in Charlotte, and he said, they're hurting for talent. And I'd been a heel at that point. And he said, the only thing is they, they, what their biggest need was a baby face, and he, and he said, if you come down here, you can be booked starting Monday in Charlotte Park Center. And like this, you know, it's like you had this dream. It's like if you wanted to play Major League Baseball and all of a sudden on Friday somebody says, Monday, you're, you're, you're coming here and you can work for the New York Yankees. <laughs> it was that kind of trying to draw a comparison. And it was like, Wow. So I, I, and I, I was, had an apartment in somebody had, a, I, I ran actually a room in a, in somebody's house. And so, uh, and I had an old beat up Chevy and he said, if you come here starting Monday, you'd be working full time. You said, that was your dream. And he said, I showed him your picture and just based on my word, nobody even knew me there. Uh, and when I got to Charlotte, the only two people that I knew were Argentina Apollo cause he had worked New York and I can't, one other guy I can't think of. Nobody else that I knew. I didn't know all the, some of them were smaller guys, not that big, you know, under 200 pounds that were main eventers. And they didn't know me and I didn't know them. But uh, uh, I just based on, on Grabmeyer's thing because they needed talent, I went to Charlotte and I worked with Gene Anderson the first night in Charlotte Park Center. And I was in the opening match. Angelo Martinelli was the referee, and he came over and he said, I ah, said, five, six minutes, and he'll go over. I said, Yep, whatever he wants to do, tell him fine, do it. So we, I get in the ring with uh, Gene Anderson, and it was a 20 minute time limit match. All of a sudden, I'm hearing three minutes left, two minutes left. So with one minute left, we go home. I was okay for what was originally supposed to be like a six minute match with him just going over and I'm out there, you know, we're telling the story and the whole thing. We get back to the dressing room and Martinelli comes over and he said, well, I know we, I told you six minutes. And he said, Gene never met you and wanted to try you out to see what, what, what you could do. And he said, that's why he kept you out there so long. And he said, the only thing I can tell you, he said, you passed with flying colors, my friend. You made a big impression tonight. And I ended up staying there for two years. And that was a big term. Now I'm a full-time wrestler, and I'm months before my 28th birthday. I wasn't a kid. I love it. It all comes kind of full circle because mm -hmm. back in the NWA days, you shared an office with Gene Anderson. So I think that's yep. pretty damn cool how it can come full circle like that. And I think it's just the perfect kind of closing point for this episode and as far as this version of the four horsemen with barry windham added to the fold and luger no longer part of it is this your favorite version barry arn tully and rick uh, you know I, I i say they were all good and i liked them all because i made money with them all but hmm. to be honest with you uh 
that group with Barry, I, I have to say, was the best. And before uh, before we close out, I I, I uh, uh, I've been doing some shows on the weekends. Uh, last weekend, I was uh, uh, I did two shows. I was with Tatanka. I was in Freehold, New Jersey, and in Glassboro. And I got a phone call from John Filippelli, who I met when I was working for Vince McMahon and the and the and the WWE in the front office. And John Filippelli, who they call him Flip, is the president of the Yes Network. Mm-hmm. And, yep. uh, and he's and and. He called me this week out of the out of the blue, and just said, "Oh, he said I was watching. I listened to your podcast. I just was in the car and just happened to catch you in the podcast, and brought back so many memories." And he called me and and had a great conversation. He said, "Oh, you need to come up to New York and and uh, with um, we'll take any Yankee game together." So it was great to hear from Flip. Uh, he and Jenna were were great people that I saw with greater frequency when I was working for Vince for those seven years and living in Connecticut. And it, it was great to, uh, uh, to hear, f- to hear from him this week. And, uh, it's, uh, uh, I'm excited. Um, as this airs, I, I'm, I'll be in St. Louis, be with Arn and be with Barry and working for uh, Herb Simmons, St. Louis. So he's been a promoter there for like 40 years. And one of the, the granddaddy promoters in the country and Charlie Hartman, uh, you know, booked me up there and I was supposed to also work for Ray Torres and Redding. And I apologize to Ray that, uh, <clears throat> I had neglected and we're, we're trying to work out another date, but, um, God, business is, business is so good. And, uh, I, I'm so blessed that I've had such great friendships over the years and to get a phone call from, uh, from John Filippelli from Clip this week was a, a, a pleasant surprise and look forward to going to New York and, and, and taking in the Yankee game with him. That is awesome. And of course, as far as some other plugs, a pro wrestling tea store has been open. So check it out. Pro wrestling slash J J Dylan, pick up a JJ shirt. A Patreon page has been set up where you can become a patron and support the show. Also, I highly recommend JJDillon.com. Yes, JJ's website, JJDillon.com. While you're on there, buy JJ's book, Wrestlers Are Like Seagulls, from Mm. McMahon to McMahon. Also, email us questions and comments at JJDillonPodcast at gmail.com. Email one more time. And I would like to look ahead, too, that next week, uh, Barry Windham is promoting an event in, in Tampa. It's a yes. big fan fest, and I'm going to be there in Tampa for that, as well as an event that night and on Sunday, uh, another event over in, in Orlando. So uh, it's good to be back out on the road. It was great to see Tatanka. He's he's planting a seed, hopefully for me to line up a trip to uh, uh, to the UK to go to England, which I've never been. So uh, it's like I'm rejuvenated, starting my career all over again. I love it. And, of course, any other questions, comments, concerns, or even maybe some bookings, just send it over to jjdillonpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip. The website is tmptempire.com. And please pay attention to all JJ's upcoming appearances. Go out and meet him, greet him, get an autograph, get a picture, buy the book. Definitely highly recommend his seminars as well. 
And JJ, it's pretty awesome that we got a fan in John Filippelli, the legendary yes. John Filippelli. Um, you're familiar cool. with the name, yes. Yes, it, of course. Uh, big big got, Yankee fan. I yep. got the call from Flip, and uh, he and Jenna, uh, I used to see them on a social basis when I was working for Vince for the seven years and, and living up in, uh, uh, in, in Stanford, Connecticut, and living in Wilton. And so it was really a, a pleasant surprise to, to hear from Flip. He's... Uh, He's a major, <laughs> he's a big shot. And I, mm-hmm. I was flattered that he took a minute because he heard the podcast and, and reached out to say hello. Right. Awesome stuff as always, JJ. And of course, fans out there, thank you so much for tuning in. And uh, please uh, join us next week for another a great episode of JJ, the JJ Dillon Podcast. This podcast was a presentation of the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcast empire.